Thank you very much for coming. We'll continue with reading from Shijiva Goswami's Krishna Sandarbha. Uh, we're on the sixth Anucheda. Uh, just a quick review before we begin. What Jiva Goswami is presenting now is systematically presenting the different Leela avatars of the Lord as presented in the third chapter of the first canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. All this leading up to the uh, Par- Pariva Sutra, that one verse in the Bhagavatam that sheds light on the whole text's meaning. Or, according to Sri Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur, sheds light on all scripture, basically, especially all Bhakti Shastra. Jeeva is just going to go through these verses and present them one by one in his Krishna Sandarbha. We've covered the beginning verses of this third chapter, which dealt with the Purusha avatars and the manifestation of the material creation from those avatars of the Lord. So now we come to the Leela avatars. So just to recap one thing we said in the last class, um, um, as put forth by Srila Rupa Goswami, uh, Rupa Goswami gives us the following breakdown of the various forms of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Um, so he denotes Swayam Rupa. It's Krishna himself in his original form. Tade Katma Rupa, same Swarup as Krishna, same being as the Supreme Lord, but the appearance is a little different. Now the Tade Katma Rupa forms of the Lord are further divided into two categories. Vilas, almost as powerful as the Supreme, and Swamsa, a little less powerful. And the examples given in regards to those two manifestations, uh, the example of uh, Vyasudeva, Vasudeva of the uh, Chaturvyuha, and uh, Matsya. Then he also denotes a third uh, form of the Lord, which is Avesh. Uh, basically, he, an enlightened jiva who has some specific quality of the Lord in a lesser or greater degree. So we generally refer to those as Saktavish avatars, this empowered an empowered jiva. Uh, examples of those empowered jivas are Narada Muni, who's infused with bhakti shakti, <laughs> and uh, the Kamaras, uh, Gyan shakti. So keeping those different classifications of the avatar manifestations of the Lord in mind um, we'll go through these Anuchetas as Jiva Goswami presents them. So Anucheta 6 Thereafter 
While describing at length the avatars of the Purusha, Sri Sutta in the next 20 verses enumerates the appearances of the portions, Amsa, of the Purusha and of the whole, Amsi, who encompasses them with the intention of disclosing their oneness. Then he quotes the sixth verse from the third chapter of the first canto. That very supreme deity, Deva, first manifesting himself as the four Kumars, assumed the form of Brahmanas and underwent the formidable vow of perpetual celibacy. In Sutta Goswami's presentation of the various Leela avatars at the beginning in the third chapter, um, they're enumerated with numbers, but it's pointed out by Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur in his commentary on the Bhagavad um, in the third chapter that this is not a chronological listing. So when we hear these avatars, we don't have to say, well, this one came before that one and that one came after this one. Uh, they're just in, an enumeration of the various avatars. And another thing that we need to keep in mind is their Lord manifests in unlimited forms. So these are just some of the prominent manifestations of the Supreme Lord. Some of them. And just to give us an example of what these various Leela avatars are. Now, interesting enough, in the Bhagavat Purana, these specific avatars that Sutta Goswami mentions in this third chapter when answering the question of the sages, it was one of the six questions, could you please give us some examples of the Lord's descent into the material world? Um, so these specific avatars are mentioned for the most part, the majority of them, later in the text, either in detail or in summary. Some of them have a few chapters, some of them have a couple verses, and one or two of them have a whole canto. <laughs> Just one, but Krishna's never there without Balaram. So. Jiva Goswami goes on. He who reposes on the Garbodak Ocean and whose form consists of thousands of feet and so on is that very supreme deity, Deva, known as the Purusha. This fact is also corroborated by the concluding statement of this section. This section meaning this section of Jiviga Swami's presentation that he's making here. All of these avatars are either portions, amsa, or partial expansions, kala, of the Purusha Pumsaha. 1.3.28. Now that verse is the Iti Chamsa Kala Pumsa Krishnastu Bhagavan Swayam. So all this description we're coming through is leading us up to this uh, 28th verse. Now the translation of that verse uh, as presented in Vishwanath Chakravarti's 
presentation of the Bhagavat Purana is all avatars mentioned and not mentioned here who are portions of Mahavishnu or empowered jivas create happiness in the world whenever it is afflicted by the demons and their ideas. But Krishna is the ultimate form of Bhagavad. In the Sandarbhas, what's been presented so far, Jiva Goswami has, has given an understanding that all the different Leela avatars, all the Leela avatars that come into a universe, come in uh, through Garbhodakshai Vishnu. And here we see Vishwanath saying all the avatars are coming in through Karnadakshai Vishnu. Now, earlier Jiva alluded to the fact that really it's not, you know, these, these, these two forms of the Lord are essentially the same. So, different Acharyas present this knowledge in, in different ways. That's all that we can really come from. Both are right. I mean, if you look at it, all the avatars are coming through the Purusha. The ultimate Purusha is Karna Dakshai Vishnu. The local Purusha is Garbo Dakshai Vishnu. In a particular universe, if you're looking at just one universe and the manifestations of the avatars in that universe, you're going to say all the avatars are coming through Garbo Dakshai Vishnu. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at the material creation as a you know, as a whole, then you're going to say all the avatars are coming through Karna Dakshai Vishnu. So it's just how are you looking and how is the Acharya explaining it? This point can't be overemphasized. We have to be able to harmonize what we hear in the scripture. And from time to time, we're going to require some assistance. We may ourselves do some research. We may inquire from the sadhu. We may go to the guru if he's local, and we may fall down and say, could you explain this? But not to ever become obstinate. And, uh, well, there's no other word for it. To become obstinate in in some particular viewpoint when we say, well, I read that Jiva said this and Sanatan said that mm -hmm. and Vishwanath said this and, you know, Baladev said it this way and, uh, well, Sridhar Swami said something entirely different in his commentary and his commentary is the commentary that Sri Chaitanya followed. And, I mean, we could just go on and on and get into this whole battle, battle of the Purva Acharyas. <laughs> And then we take that battle and we bring it into the context of our modern practice and we say, well, your guru's wrong and my guru's right. I know your guru says that, you know, there's inherency, but, you know, really there isn't some inherency. He must not have read what the, you know, what the, what the Goswami said because it, there's nothing alluding there to inherency except Bhaktivedanta Thakuri kind of alludes to that in his uh, you know, Jiva Dharma, and you know, we well, who translated that version of the Jiva Dharma? 
those kind of arguments and sentiments are not going to nourish our spiritual growth. It's good to understand them. It's good to understand that there's different opinions. It's good if we have knowledge to to engage in what's called uh, discussion, but not at the sake of disrupting the faith of others, not at the sake of creating nom- operat ourselves by diminishing the statements of Shastra, not, not for so many things we have to take great care. So to nourish, yes, we want to enter into deep understanding. We want to see things and understand the context of the of the presentation and the the context being time, place, and circumstance. Why the guru may say it in this way, or the acharya may have said it in that way, or where a specific item is said in the scripture to give us some understanding. Uh, just to give you an example, I just read an, an interesting question that was uh, submitted to a contemporary uh, guru uh, inquiring about Sukadev Goswami. Now, Sukadev Goswami, it says, was at uh, one of the great events, I think the Rajasuya sacrifice of Yudhisthira. Okay. So that's during Krishna's time. But then he walks in at the at the time of Maharaj Parikshit. All right, so the Rajasuya sacrifice took place before Maharaj Parikshit even was born. And then Sukadev Goswami, at the age of 16, is sitting down and delivering the Bhagavat Purana to Maharaj Parikshit, who's now at midlife. How could he be 16 if he was at the Rajasuya sacrifice with the other sages as put forth in Shastra? How do you reconcile that? Well, he's 16, this particular contemporary Vaishnav guru, said, you have to understand the idea that's being put forth. Sukadev is eternally youthful. He doesn't age. He's not parabdha karma, any kind of karma. Any, it doesn't affect him. So for him to be presented that way in scripture, there's nothing wrong with that. And we have to sometimes take as the acharyas do, we have to sometimes be willing to accept their poetic license in presenting a personality. So are we going to argue and say, well, scripture's wrong or that, this or that? No, these things are not going to nourish us. But it's, it's truly enlivening for us when you hear, wow, Sukadev is he's eternally youthful. He never, he can be seen as 16 throughout his life. We look at Krishna that way. Why not Krishna's devotee? 
Krishna never ages beyond a young adolescent. Isn't that the way we look at Krishna? So, why not Sukadeva Goswami, his devotee? Jiva finishes up, and he says, the word Kamaram means in the form of the four Kumara brothers. The word Brahma here means becoming Brahmanas. So, the four Kumaras, uh, Sanat, Sanandana, Sanaka, Sanatan, uh, all together as one, they're looked at as an avatar, because they're one in consciousness. Just like we look at the guru as Krishna, we don't see any difference. He's, he's our custom-built Krishna. He's there, we can serve him, wash his feet, feed him, clothe him, you know, listen to him. So it's, we look at the guru as a manifestation of Krishna. How do we accept the guru as a manifestation of Krishna like that? Even to the extent of saying, the guru has no material body. My guru has no material body. Why? Because as, as, a, as a disciple, we look upon the guru as what? There's no, he has no in, intent independent of the intent of Krishna. So what Krishna wants and what the guru wants is the same in relationship to us as a sadhika. They both want to pull us out of the material world. So in that regard, they are one. But don't say your guru's God. So it's a fine line. Well, he is God, but he's also not God. So the subtleties, the, the fine discrimination to be able to, to, to understand these things and use these things to, to, to help us um, advance. So the four Kumars, uh, they're one in the sense that they're, they, they have the same awareness their love, their level of realization is the same. Uh, they're the first sons of Brahma, and uh, thus they're part of the secondary creation, Visarga, and they found their own Sampradaya, the Kumar Sampradaya. The Kumar Sampradaya in the modern age is the Nimbarka Sampradaya, and their examples of uh, of Aishavatars, empowerment. And in their particular case, their empowerment is Gyan. Now, you would say, well, Gyan, the Gyani is basically interested in what? Liberation. Liberation. So, how could the Kumars have a Vaishnav Sampradaya? Well, because they took their aspiration for liberation to the to the gates of heaven, and they actually saw Krishna face to face. They had a hard time getting in, so they couldn't get in. Krishna came to them at the gate. It's a story. 
we won't go into right now. But the point was just by that, well, in their particular case, what's emphasized besides the other things of Krishna's presence, being in Krishna's presence and, you know, what they experienced, what really, what really tipped them from their predominantly uh, Brahmavad stance was the scent of the Tulsi on Krishna's lotus feet. But they experienced the full form of the Lord, but that's, that's emphasized as the thing that gave them bhakti. So their bhakti is, of course, uh, highlighted in, in their own sampradaya. Another thing is to understand the Kumars are specifically recognized uh, for their celibacy, their lifelong brahmacharis. In fact, they're so powerful. Uh, the Shakti they receive from Krishna is so powerful that it, it wards off even getting to an age where there's a question of losing celibacy. So they're portrayed as always young boys. They do not age beyond Kumar, the Kumar age, which is from one to five, or zero to five, uh, as it would be. And, of course, the advantage of Brahmacharya is Brahmacharya is looked upon as instrumental in assimilating Vedic knowledge. Um, if we can control uh, the sex urge, then we can assimilate the fine points of the Vedas. But truly, as brought out in the commentary here, more important, re the real meaning of Brahmachari, when we really break it down, the real me meaning is Brahma means the Veda, and Charya means conduct. So conduct that's beneficial to understanding the Veda. So we can say, well, celibacy is beneficial. But really, Brahmacharya can be looked at more deeply as what's the most beneficial to understanding the Veda. And that's devotion to Bhagavan. So if you really want to understand the Veda, really Brahmachari in its deepest of meanings means that that understanding of the Veda, that contact, conduct that leads to that understanding the best conduct you can have is dedication to Bhagavan, to the Supreme Lord, to Krishna. Moving ahead to the second avatar, Anucheta 7. When the earth had fallen into the depths of Varasatala, the Lord of Sacrifice assumed the second avatar in the form of divine boar, Varaha, to uplift the earth so that the world could prosper.
The only thing as far as commentary that Jiva adds is the pronoun Asya means of the world and Bhavaya means for its progress. We find in the Bhagavatam a narration of the Boar incarnation lifting the earth. And we also note in the commentaries in regards to that uh, section of the Bhagavatam that different manifestations of Varaha are spoken of, coming at different times, either fighting with, uh, what was it, Hiranyaksha, or not, depending which one. So again, not to be hung up or wait, that's, there's only the Varaha, no, this is a continual cycle. So Varaha is coming and manifesting himself again and again. The eighth Anucheta, the third avatar, Sri Narada. Then Jiva Goswami quotes the eighth verse from the third chapter. In his third avatar, that very Purusha, Garbodakshai Vishnu, assumes the disposition of a seer, Rishi, as the celestial sage, Sri Narada, propagated the Sattvata Vaishnav Tantra, by which freedom from bondage to action, Naishkarmya, is attained through means of action. So the Bhagavatam speaks a lot of Narada, Narada's life, Narada's past life. It's also Narada speaks of his past life. He is also manifest from Brahma at the beginning of creation. He's the son of Brahma. So Jiva goes on to say a couple things. He says, the Purusha assumed the disposition of a seer, Rishi, and among such seers, he specifically accepted the form of the celestial sage Sri Narada. The word Sattvatam means Vaishnav, and Tantram here refers to the Pancharatra and Agama literatures. The word Karmanam, through, through means of action, implies that although Dharma performed for the sake of Sri Bhagavan is also of the form of action, by that, or in other words, by action according to the Sattvata Tantra, one attains Naishkarmya. Therefore, Naishkarmya liberates one from bondage to karma. It is here the state of freedom from karma. It merely appears to be non-different from karma. It is to be added to the verse to complete the sense. So what exactly do we mean when we talk about the Pancharatra Agama? And what, what is the significance of that? So that's pointed out in the commentary to some extent, which I wanted to share. Uh, the Vaishnavas are also called Sattvatas. So devotees are called Sattvatas. And thus, the Sattvata Tantra means Vaishnav Tantra. It refers to the body of scripture called Pancharatra Agama, 
The Vedas are called Nigama and Tantra are known as Agama. There are three divisions of Tantra, namely Vaishnav, Saiva, and Sakta. So, when we talk about Tantra, pointed out here, basically their actions performed in pursuance of the glorification of Bhagavan Sri Krishna or Bhagavan. So they're either Vaishnav or they're in praise of Shiva, who many accept as the Supreme. And it's interesting because Shiva, really, if we look at the material manifestation, Shiva is that manifestation of the Lord who is is easily pleased and takes a position that he's like he's in between a jivatma and the supreme lord but he touches material nature and then you have the shaktis those that worship um, the shaktis of the supreme durga and all of her various manifestations for material benefit so it's pointed out here that we have three divisions of the Tantra that pursue these three objects of worship, either Krishna or Shiva or the Shaktis of Krishna, or we would say the you know the extensions of of Radha within the material realm. Vaishnav Tantras are properly known as Pancharatra Agama, Pancharatra or simply Agama. So when we hear these terminologies, Agama, Pancharatra, or Pancharatra Agama. Um, now it says here, the story of the appearance of Pancharatra Agama is narrated by Bhishma in the 335th chapter of Santiparva of the Mahabharata. So what basically is this Pancharatra? It is, as said here, the karmas karmas or ritual acts prescribed in the Pancharatra Agama are also a type of karma. Their action. They're things that you do. So it looks like karma. Looks like you do something to get a result. But they are not the cause of bondage. This is so because they are undertaken exclusively for the pleasure of Bhagavan without any sense of doership and without seeking any form of reward, totally selfless. They are therefore called Naishkarmya, or freedom from bondage to karma. It's a high bar, really, because generally, honestly, if we're totally honest, and straightforward in our dealings, even we look to our Krishna conscious actions, for the most part in the beginning, during our anista, unsteady devotional practice, we have a lot of latent samskaras which are burnt into our psyche for enjoying 
the material world. Now, we'll take those samskaras and we're, by some uh, unimaginable good fortune, yadrichaya, we come in contact with the path of devotion to the Supreme in whatever form. There are so many, but we have our whole sampradaya and a whole specificity as to how we want to progress. But when we look to devotion, it's a complete and absolute turning of consciousness away from what we've been accustomed to since time immemorial. So we have these impressions that I am the enjoyer and we take those and bring those to us into this new realm of, of life, which is devotional service. We shouldn't expect that we're going to immediately be able to turn off all that has been our essence for eons of lifetimes, which we can't even measure. A naughty, unmeasurable lifetimes. So when we come to devotional service, of course, yes, I want to worship God. I want to worship with, you know, I'm selfless in my worship of God. But in the back of our head, I'm like, well, I want to get to the spiritual world. Yeah, that's not the level of devotional practice that the Gaudiya's put forth as the as the exemplar of unalloyed devotion. Ahitakiya Pratiyata. Unmotivated and uninterrupted. There's a motive? You want to get to Vaikuntha? Yeah, that's not the Gaudiya standard. Or I want to get the good, I want to be the head Pajari. Or I want to be the the temple president, or I want I want to be the best kirtan leader, or I want people to recognize my devotion, or I want to be. So we bring these things. We don't need to become erotic, you know, neurotic about the fact that they're there and the minds keeps, you know, standing on our shoulder and you know, with the little pitchfork guy, he's like, yeah, come on, you should kick these other devotees down so you can move yourself up, you know. <laughs> Don't worry about what this says in the book that you need to touch their feet and worship their feet and bathe in the in the water from their feet because they're really what devotion is all about. Do these, you know. So we have this constant, it's called anista. It's an unsteady stage of devotion that we go through. And we have these, you know, all these things come up and bubble up and... It takes some time to be programmed. It may be one life, it may be two or three, whatever. But we know what their objective is, and if we keep a clear conscience as to what what we want to attain, then steadiness will come in due course of time. So these agamas, the pancharatra, is meant to to engage us in actions of devotion that truly will take us to the point of no karmic 
reaction. Now, in and of themselves, there's no karma because they're they're coming from that plane of presentation, like Narada's plane of presentation. They're his. It's what he's he's the avatar of bhakti, so he's giving these directions. Worship like this, and 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 act like this. So that's that's what we're talking about in Pancharatra. Not talking about just understanding the philosophy. We're talking about enacting the philosophy according to our circumstance. So we find the the methodologies for worshiping. The deity. We find the methodologies for worshiping Tulsi. We find the methodologies for worshiping the the, the the sadhus and the guru and the Vaishnavs. So this is what, when we hear these terms, tantra, we're not talking about some whatever whatever our current culture is saying is tantra. Some, you know some crazy people running off in the woods and worshiping, you know, Satan in a tree or something, you know, or some tantric black magic, you know, where you're cursing one person to do this or to do that or cursing them because they've they they've offended your false ego or sense of self in some way. I'm sorry, false sense of self in some way. Uh, we're talking about Pancharatra, Tantra, these... Now, when we go to Dur the Durga, I'm sure there's some of that in those. In those, They also have those Agamas or Tantras in their worship of Durga. There might be a little bit of that intent in those presentations. But though that's not the intent behind the Vaishnava and the Pancharatra, which Nard is as given to, to human society. Um, the word Tantra comes from the root, meaning to spread. Consequently, Tantra is a scripture that extends knowledge. Tantra is a storehouse of mysticism, theology, philosophy, and religious principles. Discussing the origin of the cosmos, the purpose of human life, the socio-religious system of Varnashram, the significance of samskaras, the practice of yoga, and so on. Bhagavan Vishnu is the principal deity of the Vaishnava Tantra. The idea with the process of worship, meditation, the rules of temple and architecture, descriptions of the yoga pith, pit, Worship of Tulsi, types of devotion, and various procedures and rules of devotion. So all this is the Pancharat. It's the it's the uh, technical aspect of our practice. It's a way that we can uh, practically engage according to a standard of worship that's been put forth by the standard bearer of unalloyed devotion, Narada Muni. So we call it the Narada Pancharatra. Anucheda 9. The fourth avatar, the sages Nara and Narayan, Jiva begins, 
again quoting the verse from the Bhagavatam, in the fourth avatar, taking birth from Murti, the devoted wife of Dharma, he appeared as the twin sages Nara and Narayan and undertook severe austerity with perfect mastery of the self. The meaning here is self-evident. The sages, the commentary reads, the sages Nara and Narayan are twins and have been counted as one avatar. They reside in the Himalayas. Their appearance is narrated in the first chapter of the fourth canto, where they were born of Morti, the wife of Dharma. They are the presiding deity of Bharatvarsa in the present presiding deity Bharat Vars well how do you want to look at it if you want to look at it just as India Varsa or do you want to look at it as the entire planet um, a couple verses from the Bhagavatam I pulled out to look at in this regard if we look, go to the fourth canto the first chapter uh, again this particular first chapter of the fourth canto is like it's like Swayambhuva Manu, beginning of the lineage, of the the population, the 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 manifestations of the different shaktis that are beneficial to humankind. So all these different families and all the children of the families and the different demigods. So in that chapter. Narn and Narayan are are depicted there, along with a myriad of other personalities that are coming for, forth at the beginning of the reign of Swayambhuva Manu, just this one Manu. So, uh, and we find a lot of the Bhagavat Purana is dealing with Swaya, the reign of Swayambhuva Manu. It's it, because it gives us a perspective as to the nature of the Lord's creation and, and what's really involved in the, the hierarchy of management of material nature and of, and, of, and of the inhabitants of the creation and specifically the intelligent inhabitants, those that have higher intelligence like humans, like the devas. So that this verse is from there. These two portions of the Lord have, have entered Krishna and Arjuna, best of the Yadus and Kuru dynasties, for relieving the earth of its burden. Commentary here by Vishwanath. Narana and Narayan, portions of the Lord at the end of Dwarpa Yuga, have attained the forms of Krishna and Arjuna. The portions, Amsas, have entered their Amsis. The portions, Narana and Narayan, have entered their source. So when Krishna advents, all of his different parts and parcels come into him. This also happens for his eternal associates. They can also have a manifestation and that manifestation can come into the material world so they're like 
incarnations, like in this case, Nara, is an incarnation of Arjuna. It's a portion of Arjuna coming in and serving with Narayan together as Nara Narayan, Rishi. The portions Amsas have entered their Amsis. This is explained in the Lagu Bhagavatamrita. Now the Lagu Bhagavatamrita is a book about the various manifestations of the Lord uh, presented by Srila uh, Rupa Goswami. So you have Sanatan Goswami presented the Brihat Bhagavatamrita and the smaller Bhagavatamrita. We have the Lagu Bhagavatamrita presented by Rupa Goswami. Uh, Narnarayan, the expansions of Vishnu, entered Krishna and Arjuna at the end of Dwarpa Yuga. A verse from the fifth canto. In Bharatvarsa, the Lord, in the form of Narnarayan, whose glories are inconceivable, to favor the Gyanis, mercifully performs austerities till the end of the Yuga, which include realization of Atma, abundant Dharma, knowledge, renunciation, powers, sense control, and freedom from false ego. Thank you very much. Thank you.